vengeance. I am the knight. I am Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Brother Will, how's it going? Well, Matt, true to my word, I haven't left my desk. Uh, I'm sitting in my own filth. It's uh, it's quite terrible, but I'm glad we're back so we can we can get on with this process. Let me ask you this: this was a, a thought that that popped in my head. I obviously met with my students virtually because again, I didn't leave the desk, and I had a conversation today about like career goals and getting that degree and pushing through. I had a student that was like, "Man, I just I'm, I'm not feeling it. I don't." I'm not having a good time in this program. How does one get from a degree in the classics to working in the theater as a career? So that is a, I guess, funny story. You graduate with a degree in English literature focused on Shakespeare and a degree in theater with a focus on theater history. And you're thinking, yeah, it's academia. It's academia, maybe publishing, maybe, you know, editing, but you're figuring academia. And then, you know, you're, you're get out and it's like, okay, well, I need to find a job until I find something that becomes a career. And one of the things that I did while at college, where I worked at times never less than one and sometimes as many as three jobs at once, because... I am insane and am a full-time student with three part-time jobs. One of those part-time jobs was running the box office for the university theater. And there happened to be a job available at a theater in their box office. And it was like, sure, that'll eat up six months while I find something better. And so started. And they were getting ready to move over to a new ticketing software more than ticketing it's a crm a customer relationship management software so it does ticketing it does fundraising it does education classes it does all of it in one suite so you can get a full view of your relationship with each of the patrons the initial thought was it's easier to teach the new guy the software and have him start working with it and doing stuff and then slowly retrain the existing staff on it who already have the habits of the old software. So I was trained on this software and I have a knack for computers. It's just never anything I'd intended to be good at, but it's just something I was good at. And so the next thing you know, it's like, well, I am suddenly the expert on this software. And this software, the theater I was working at, we were the eighth organization in the country to go live on this software. Now there are 600 organizations worldwide. I've been working with this software longer than anybody who doesn't work for the software company now. So I just sort of fell ass backwards into it. Very nice. Was academia always your supposed path? I had always fancied myself a writer. I think it was maybe second grade. I would write stories for like quarters and such for other students. 
And I was always a bit lazy and like trying to figure out that as a career path. So I, I kind of fell into academia. My, my mother was an elementary school teacher. Uh, my great grandmother was an elementary school teacher. So I guess education's kind of in the family and uh, I just enjoy it. Right. Uh, it's one of those things that I would do for, uh, for not money. You know, like that, like that student today, like we had a good conversation and at the end of the class, when we were leaving, he was, he just shook my hand and he was like, thanks. And like, that was really fucking cool. Like, I don't get that every day. And those times when I do get it, I'm like, you know what? This is why I'm doing this. The eternal struggle. And speaking of eternal. Yeah, that, that was not a ah! labor. <laughs> hey, that, that there was a not bad. Pun. Not bad. Yeah, because we are back with uh, part two, episode 75. And we are tackling the middle chapter of Batman Eternal. Hush War. Yes. This is Batman Eternal Part 2, which is issues 22 to 34. Here we go again with these massive credits. Uh, the writers are Scott Snyder, James Tiny IV, Ray Fox, Tim Seeley, and Kyle Higgins. Pencils by Jorge Lucas, Dustin Nguyen, Andy Clark, R.M. Guerra, Juan Ferreira, Javier Garon, Megan Hetrick, Simon Colby, Fernando Passerin, Jason Fabuck, and... Alvaro Martinez Bueno, inks by Lucas, Derek Friedolfs, Clark, Guerra, Ferreira, Garon, Hetrick, Colby, Matt Ryan, Fabok, and Raul Fernandez. Colors by Brett Smith, John Kalish, Blonde, Julia Brusco, Juan Ferreira, Romulo Fajardo Jr., and Brad Anderson. Letters by Dizzy Cienti, Steve Wands, and Taylor Esposito. And edited by Mark Doyle, Matt Humphreys, Dave Wilgush, and Chris Conroy. Cover dates are November of 2014 to January of 2015. With the mastermind behind everything going wrong in Gotham seemingly revealed to be Hush, Batman and his allies begin to search for their foe. But Hush remains one step ahead, and his plans are not to kill Batman, but to destroy him in front of the city. Let me start first by saying... Detective Comics Comics, you can do recap pages because this thing in trade opens with a recap page. <laughs> the story so far, and it is one, two, three, four, five, six paragraphs explaining what happened in the first volume. You frauds, you charlatans, you monsters. It can be done. You can write a recap page. There's no way you could do this thing without a recap page. I, I mean, I'm tempted to do a recap of last week's podcast because <laughs> of the amount of stuff that goes on in each chapter of this book. There's a lot of stuff that happens. And there's, I mean, there's considerably less stuff that happens in chapter two than happens in chapter one. And there's still a shit ton of stuff that happens. Yes. I feel like there are fewer plot lines, though, that we're starting to sort of funnel. And I think into part three, there might even be fewer still, because we're narrowing the suspects, narrowing the schemes as the series continues. And there are fewer plot lines that feel 
critical to the story. The story of Jade is very important in this chapter and Killer Croc and his relationship to Jade. But as sad and as sweet as that is, as precocious as Jade is, she is not the fate of Gotham. She is not Bruce Wayne and his relationship to the Bat family. She is just not critical to this story. And we get a lot of the Arkham supernatural stuff, which has from the beginning felt like a sideline. And while the ramifications of Arkham are somewhat important, it's not felt in this book. It's felt in a spinoff. That's one of the things that we run across at this point where we're starting to get books that spin out of Eternal. Because that Arkham plot gives you two other titles. It gives you Arkham Manor and Gotham After Midnight. But once it happens here in Eternal and there is the fall of Arkham towards the end of this section of the book, that supernatural stuff doesn't matter. It was just there to cause chaos and to spin off these other titles. Absolutely a means to an end. And primarily for this story, the means was, or the end was, uh, just blowing the hell out of Arkham. And again, I don't want to get too far ahead of where we are in this book, because we don't know exactly why. But that thread is one of the intentionally random threads that is a part of the stuff that goes on at the end or is revealed at the end. And I mean, at least I remember that I'm trying to remember how the nanobot thread ties into the Uber plot. And that one barely exists in this segment. Uh, barely is, is a strong word. I, I, I read this basically in two chunks, the biggest chunk today. And I suppose that was in the first chunk. Cause I, I don't even remember it at all. There's one scene with Tim and Harper towards the end where they, well, no, at the very beginning, I'm sorry, where Tim finds out that Bruce believes Hush is involved. And I think that's all you see of Tim in this part of the book. I just started reading part three after I finished part two and I was trying not to, you know, get ahead because I didn't want to mess this up in my brain. But part three is another long one. This is the shortest of these three chunks. It's 21 issues for the first one, 14 for the second, and 19 for the back. There's a lot here. And this is the soft middle. There's a joke in an episode of The Simpsons where it's one of the three stories in an episode thing where they're, you know, doing classic literature or something like that. And they're getting to the middle chapter and Bart is going to tell the story and Marge is like, that's good. The middle chapter is usually the weakest. <laughs> Family Guy has done a very similar joke, too. And that is not always true i mean your dark knight trilogy your classic star wars trilogy your godfather trilogy but i think those are the three exceptions that sort of prove the rule yeah the batman vampire definitely right there too the middle chapter is usually there it's the workhorse it's there to get you from 
all of the stuff that you've established into the denouement. The Lord of the Rings trilogy is a great example where the middle chapter there, I'm not even talking the movies, I'm talking the books, is A, it's split into two segments where you don't even have, you're not cutting back and forth. It's like, here's the Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli section, and here is the Frodo and Sam section. And it begins strangely because it begins with really what feels like the last chapter of the previous book, which is why they included that in the Fellowship of the Ring movie. Because it's like, oh, guess what? We're going to kill off a main character in chapter one, as opposed to at the climax of the previous book. That is the one of the best examples of the weak middle chapter. Star Trek's two, three, and four. Yes, absolutely. I mean, as good as Search for Spock is, it is not as good as Wrath of Khan or Voyage Home. Although stealing the Enterprise, still badass sequence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of good there. And it's 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 definitely the best odd-numbered TOS movie. And you could argue whether it or Generations is the best odd-numbered Trek movie, period. Oh, I fucking hate Generations. Well, we will get there someday. Come on, folks. <laughs> Nine backers off. Come on. You, you imagine all the content. Imagine get, all the stuff you could hear. You know what? Get your friends. If you don't have any friends, sign up twice. A dollar. So nine more people at a dollar. And you will get a like two-hour episode of Matt and Will ranking Star Trek movies. You know and, and you want to hear it. If you sign up twice... I'll I'll come up with two different nicknames in the shout out at the end, right? I'll work twice as hard just for you. But back to Eternal. So I said it last time that each of these chapters has a very distinct main through line. Part one was the gang war between Falcone and the Penguin. And this is the Hush chapter. This is all about Hush making his play to destroy Batman and manipulating Jason Bard, or so it seems. Basically, that nearly every issue has some of that. The only other threads here than the Arkham stuff is the Catwoman stuff. And Catwoman sort of beginning to make her peace with the fact that she is going to have to take up the reins of the Calabresi crime family and become the queen pin of Gotham. And the Croc and Jade stuff plays into that. But we get so much hush in this book. So much hush and so much bard. Too much hush, one might wager. Yeah, because we also get the new origin or the new 52 tinkered origin of hush here where he's not just pissed at bruce he's like full-on single white female for bruce which takes the thing that they did at the end of the pre-flashpoint era where hush did plastic surgery to look like batman looks like bruce wayne But there it was so he could take over Wayne Enterprises and run it into the ground. It wasn't that he really wanted to be Bruce Wayne. He wanted all the trappings that come with Bruce Wayne, but he wasn't jealous of Bruce. Here, he wants to be Bruce Wayne. Now, as you have said many times, 
I got to read Heart of Hush and we'll we'll do that at some point, uh, I'm sure, because we're going to do everything. But Hush, man, just does not work for me. I don't like the design. I don't like just the core of the character, the origin story. I don't like the whole idea of, of him like killing his parents and being jealous of Bruce and these flashback scenes we have here of them like squabbling in high school and the just the costume design and just it's just all just bad i and i don't like it i'm looking at my notes to try to find that segment and i'm realizing of course that i said there were only those plot threads but no there there's more stuff because there is there's all the the julia pennyworth and alfred stuff as well but that also ties pretty heavily into the hush stuff since there's that the alfred plot sort of runs through everything just like in Dark Knight Rises, he disappears for a big old stretch in this book. You know, we visit him at the hospital and then he just goes away until he is transferred very conveniently to Arkham. I mean, that that's because of Hush. I mean, that, that yeah. at least makes sense. And of course, the spoiler stuff, again, runs through this entire book a little. But there isn't as much spoiler in this chapter either. It's a lot of Hush. Everything but the Catwoman plot touches the Hush plot here. Mm. And the Arkham stuff. Even the Arkham stuff in a way does because of the Alfred stuff. And it's just, Hush is this cackling, mustache twirling villain here. He is so unctuous. There are villains who can pull that off. That's Riddler's shtick too. Where you just want to kind of slap Eddie. But Eddie's been doing that for you know, 70 years. Yes, Hush does not work as well as a villain because it's another Poochie. Hush yes. is another one of those characters that like, isn't he so cool? The difference with Hush is Hush was created by Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee. So there's immediately cachet because of his creators. I think they just had this design that they thought was neat and they wanted to come up with a backstory for him. That's what it feels like because the design has nothing to do with the character. And I hate it. I hate it so much. Like why is this guy walking around all the time in bandages? And yes, he has the seminal moment with Bruce where they get in a fight and he cuts his head open on a mirror and they're like, Oh, like it's just so dumb it just insults my intelligence as a reader and i don't buy it and i certainly can't buy him as a mastermind and that makes honestly more sense than his origin than why he wears that costume in the pre-flashpoint universe which was just there so you could play fake out over and over with who's under the bandages he had no reason to be bandaged other than Oh, you can have him unwrap and it's Harvey Dent. Oh, you can have him unwrap and it's Jason Todd. You know who did that better? Fucking Darkman. Somebody acquired the license to Darkman comics. Hush was created to be this mastermind. But at the same time, we learned at the end of Hush that, oh yeah, he isn't really the mastermind. It was Riddler. And, and we get hints of Riddler's involvement towards the end of this. There, there's a couple of other New 52 versions of characters in here that I 
do not particularly care for. And since we're, we're talking about the New 52 change on Hush, I got to also add the New 52 version of Bane that we get here is awful. Okay. Like, we ignore Nightfall. He doesn't know who Alfred is. They're walking through the ruins of Arkham and Alfred has to introduce himself. So Alfred doesn't have any previous interaction with Bane. And Bane is this sort of, you know, you will walk behind me. I am the leader of men thing. No, Bane is smarter than that. If Alfred knows the way, Bane is, of course, going to let Alfred lead him. And Bane falls right into that gas trap. Bane is smarter Ad than all of this. Admittedly, that trap was pretty fucking cool. Oh, it was very cool. I wish it had used a villain who would have been enough of a sucker for it. Flamingo, maybe. Yeah. Scarecrow. Mad Hatter. Someone who doesn't know that Alfred is Batman's butler. The fact that Bane suddenly doesn't know who Alfred is after he smacked him around in Wayne Manor. But I guess we're at the question of, did Nightfall happen? Because in the sequel to this, in the follow-up, Batman and Robin Eternal, we theoretically get the Bat family's first meeting with Azrael. So I guess Nightfall hadn't happened. Strange. But then we get Rebirth and Nightfall has happened because continuity. We also get the incredibly inconsistent portrayals of Leslie Tompkins. The new books in some issues to be about 25. Yeah. Depending on who was writing Leslie in the new 52, sometimes she was the more matronly doctor. Sometimes she was younger and worked for child protective services. It was different from writer to writer. And it seems like we get both versions in this book, even though it's the same character. I think everything we talked about last time with the art applies to this chapter and maybe like twice as hard. The inconsistent character designs absolutely continue to kill me. Bard has maybe four or five different looks. Same with Killer Croc. Just maddening inconsistency. But when Arkham falls, this middle chapter is probably at its strongest, both in terms of storytelling and the visuals. When Faybox starts to do some of these issues, they are really, really solid. But yeah. you have to get halfway, three quarters in before that starts to pick up. We can only blame it so much because, again, it's weekly. And so you're not going to be able to have anyone who can keep up with it. But there are any number of things that could have smoothed this out. The fall of Arkham stuff, that whole plot, again, is just the timeline there is so weird. Because, again, it seems like the Spectre Corrigan has been down there. It seems like the last time we, we saw anything between those plots is like six issues apart. But it seems like no time has passed. Mm-hmm. While all this stuff has gone on on the surface with Hush, 
just so you all know, I, I've decided to not purge my notes after each part because I'm curious to see how many pages of notes I get by the end of this. And I'm, you know, two or three issues into part three, and I'm up to 32 pages of notes. So it's a lot of notes. I find it fascinating that they almost seem to go out of their way. And it might be because other creators were using some of these characters, but it feels like they have, they almost bend over backwards to keep Two-Face and Joker. They at least did the smart thing in the new 52 where when Joker showed up, it was a big deal. He wasn't there every month, but Scarecrow is barely there. I mean, he's Blackfire's blood puppet, but we don't get a lot of those major villains. And yet we still get these weird one-off minor new 52 villains, like the ferryman popping up an architect for an bone, Mr. Bone. Yeah. That guy introduced in the early issues of the new 52 Catwoman, which was not a good book. There's more to say, but it, it, it feels like there's less, much less goes on in this chapter. And it's again, not just because it's shorter, but because, Cause in many ways, it is so much more focused on Hush. And so less focused on Jim Gordon, which was the critical issue, the driving problem of the first volume. And the best parts of this chapter are the interpersonal things. The stuff that I found the most compelling was Bruce and Julia and Alfred and two or three scenes, but spread out over one or two issues, but it's one thing continuous of Barbara and Bard. Yeah. And Jason showing up in the end. That is a great sequence because it gets to the heart of who Barbara is. And it's Jason knowing exactly what to do because Barbara has Bard and she's she's pulling a pretty typical Batman thing where she's got him tied by the ankle and keeps dropping him and catching him and moving from building to building, dropping him and catching him. And eventually Jason Todd shows up and he takes the rope and he's like, you're not going to do it. You're not a killer. That's not who you are. But it is who well, I, I am. am. And he lets go. And Barbara has this moment, but she can't let him die. She catches him, and that's when he breaks his ankle and starts walking on the cane, which was always Jason Bard in the pre-New 52 continuity. Bard is always on a cane. So this gives him the limp for when he eventually shows up post-Eternal in Batgirl. He's walking on the cane then, too. But I love all of the stuff between Bruce and and julia it's not heavy-handed but we're watching these two start (coughs) to interact and start to act like alfred's two children Mm. they're the two people who care about him the most in the world his biological daughter and his foster son and the moment when alfred comes back when he reclaims the cave under Arkham. It's great. 
you read the relief on Julia's face. Like she's always, she's in, literally got tears. And then Bruce just, it's good to hear you, Penny One. Now it's time to get to work. Very good, sir. Very good. Yes. Exactly. Alfred would never expect any more from Bruce than that, but he knows what that means. But we also get to the end and Alfred is basically saying, I don't want my daughter in this life because he knows what this does to people. And he already has one child going out there every night and endangering himself in front of costumed psychopaths. He doesn't want it for her too. Does Alfred believe Dick to be dead at this point? Yes, I'm 99% sure he does. So that, that would be weighing on his brain as well. Yeah. And Damien as well. Both of them are dead at this point. Well, Damien's a little shit. But he's Alfred. He believes that everyone is their best angels. Uh, I suppose so. Well, we don't get a lot of this in this chapter. This chapter ends with the Bruce loses his fortune bit, which goes nowhere. How many times is Bruce Wayne going to lose his fortune? Well, it, it plays out through Eternal. And then, yeah, in some ways, it plays out in super heavy because he's, you know, penniless. But suddenly, by rebirth, he just has his money back. And I, they sort of hand wave it, but it doesn't matter. I mean, here, it's just to, to give Hush his win. And because everything has to go wrong. I mean, that's, that is sort of the point here, that nothing goes right through this story. And we also get the Lucius, who is the business Lucius. He's not Batman's tech guru here. He doesn't know the secret, or at least he's not making it clear to Bruce that he knows the secret. That's another one of these things that just sort of happens we don't see when or why. I mean, I guess we eventually see in flashback how Lucius learned the secret, but it just becomes something that is part of continuity when you get to rebirth. I think this story is at its absolute softest, weakest point where you're with Jade and her uncle. Yeah. Question Ibanescu. mark. Yeah. Ibanescu, the guy with the, the menagerie. But uh, I will point out, as uh, as someone working on his own home arcade, he's got this console, this uh, arcade cabinet on one page, Infinite Crisis, a driving game. <laughs> that is a nice touch. The Jade stuff is there to set up the Selena stuff. Jade is basically fridged at the end. Although, again, it's always the question of fridging is specifically there for a female character to die to motivate a male character. Since her death is really there to motivate Selena, is that a fridging? It certainly motivates Croc, right? But Croc's reaction is less key to the overall narrative. That That's just there so we see this reaction. But for the story... Jade's death is what gets Selena to finally go to Calabresi and be like, yeah, tell me what you need me to do to take over. That was an interesting scene for me with uh, with Killer Croc, because Batman, to my eye, 
pulled the grappling gun on Croc. And I wanted to say in that scene, you know, a grappling gun, when used as a weapon, is still a gun. Oh, yeah. You fire that into somebody, it is going to break ribs, if not pass right through them. I mean, it's still Killer Croc, and we have seen him, somebody use some type of weapon on him that went straight through him. I forget who that was. Was it Bard? I know Bard pulled a gun on Croc at the end of part one. It was some kind of weapon, though, or that wasn't a gun. It was like Mm. some kind of grapple line thing. Not that Batman did not shoot him, but someone did, and it went through him, and there was some barb on the other side. But yeah, I... I would have liked that moment with a little bit more finesse because I, yes, I think Batman would stop Killer Croc in some kind of situation, but he still wouldn't use a gun analog. Right. And it's, it's all, there's so much I'm like looking at it. like, what, what is things are blending. This is also the chapter where we, we get the confirmation that Rex Calabresi, the lion is Selena's father. Which is, of course, a shift from previous continuity where it was theoretically the Roman. And it makes Selena's grudge with the Roman in some ways make more sense. Because if she believed that Rex was dead, that he'd been hiding in prison all these years, then yeah, she's going after the guy who killed her father. And at what point did she learn that Rex was, in fact, alive and in prison? Again, the timeline there is wonky because I'm not sure. It seems like she knew for a while, at least. I think the Roman, though, is just a much more solid story. Oh, yeah. Calabresi is there to be Catwoman's father. He has no real point other than he is Catwoman's father. The Roman is a character in his own right. Who is... Not in this volume. No. I'm pretty sure he's just gone. I don't remember if... He, I don't think he even pops up again in part three. He's just gone. At least again, all, all of the things that made the first volume such an engrossing, complex read are just not here. I mean, Penguin comes back in part three, and we get the Selena running Gotham's mobs stuff, which is interesting. We get the mob again. In part three, really. The only stuff with the mob here is Ibanescu and Ferryman, and... They suck. Yeah, neither of them are particularly interesting characters at all. Bard remains interesting, although he gets kind of whiny in places here. Uh, Oh, you you double-crossed me, Hush. You got my men killed. Ah. Boy... Hush told you to send your guys out to specific places. What were you expecting? He's fucking Hush. Of course he's going to jerk you around and he's going to kill people because it's what he does. The plan is solid. Basically frame Batman, use Batman's tech to create this chaos. That makes sense. That works. It works as a concept, but does it ever really work in a story? That's Joker War, too. Mm. And and here, at least, it's not, you know, let's equip all these villains with <coughs> Batman tech. It's like, well, let's just blow up the caches of weapons and tie it into Wayne and ruin Batman. It's not a bad plot. 
I just wish it was done by a more interesting villain. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they are both more interesting when not tied together, right? If you're using the weapons caches to destroy Gotham, okay, very cool. Let's do that. But then if you're also just using them to say that, oh, Wayne Enterprises is building these bunkers below your city, what is Bruce Wayne up to? Like, you should kind of have to pick a lane there. There's also a really interesting thread that is established towards the beginning of this part that I never feel like gets paid off properly. And I think it's because it's a cool thing to say, but since this is a comic book and has to have action to it, is visually kind of boring. The fact that Cluemaster has this cadre of villains just fucking with Gotham's infrastructure. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. It's like, oh, we're screwing up the traffic patterns to cause gridlock. We are fucking with the water system and basically inserting pathogens through the rats into there. We're putting rolling blackouts into the most crime-ridden neighborhoods at times of major sporting events, of holidays, the times when that would be the biggest problem. You're making the kettle boil and... We get hints of it. We see the traffic jams, but it's never really teased out. It's just like, yeah, this bad shit is happening. It's not like this thing needs to be any longer than it is, but I think I would have rather had less of the supernatural weirdness at Arkham and more had stuff with Harvey Bullock and Maggie Sawyer dealing with some of the stuff that's going on on the ground level at Gotham. Which was, again, an interesting part in the first volume. Right. You've got crimes that are caused by these kind of things. Again, you get hints of it when Bard leaks the fact that there's going to be these terrorist attacks and the mayor is refusing martial law. You see the riots that happen. But again, it goes away quickly. But then at least you've got the reason why is that they bring in martial law. And we don't have a real kind of investigation of the implication of that. We just see like troops. We see some of those troops die. You know, the the federal government comes in and seizes those uh, Wayne Enterprises uh, assets. But other than that, there's not a real kind of investigation of what basically fascism in Gotham means. I will say, and I think this this is partially in chapter three as well, but we do start seeing here, I remember after we read Court of Owls, I was like, boy, I wish they had paid off more of this Bruce Wayne's new Gotham. It's like, oh, right. All that shit gets wrecked in the earthquake and then in some of the stuff later on. That's why we don't see any of it. So at least that does get paid off. There's also the little bits of Riddler, but Riddler doesn't get paid off until part three. Joker's daughter remains the least interesting character in this entire thing. I'm thinking if there's someone least or less interesting than Joker's daughter. Even Hush is more. I guess Ferryman. 
and Ebenescu are probably less interesting than Joker's daughter. Yeah. At this point, you're pretty sick of Bard. We get much less of spoiler. There's also only like three or four spoiler sequences in here. One of them is great. I love how she basically screws over her dad by just getting him out of the city. It's like, oh, I know you own the cops. So I'm just going to get you out of the city and into the hands of state troopers. And it's like, oh, well, guess what? They aren't on your payroll. Dadies. Also, her little notes to Batman were kind of clever. Like, hey, you should probably be more careful of what you're doing and where you're going. uh, Because we got this whole social media thing now. The fact that Cluemaster is still talking to a figure who is constantly in the shadows should have indicated to people if they were paying any real attention that Hush was not the big bad. Because if he was, why would he continue to be in shadow when talking to Cluemaster? And it's there's little things, because Hush is always quoting Aristotle, and in the confrontation between the mysterious figure and Cluemaster, it's Sun Tzu. So it's like, okay, so... It's close enough that if you're not paying a ton of attention, you're assuming that it's Hush. But it's a little hint that this is not Hush who's really pulling all of these threads. But then when Hush comes at spoiler, it's like, okay, well, maybe it is. They do a decent job of getting you to really think that it could be Hush who is the mastermind behind all of this. That is possibly the strongest part of this volume for all of his goofy ass faults hush is presented as somebody who very well could be the mastermind yes he is a threat even if he is again just he has one of the worst motivations of a supervillain just the creepy stalker thing is not a great motivation he he doesn't work for me on that level it's not about the challenge. You get some of this about, you know, him saying that Bruce isn't using his fortune the right way. None of it rings true. None of it works. Oh, and he's also been able to go through med school and be a doctor. The guy just sucks. He just fucking sucks, Matt. Yeah, we're, we're going to do Heart of Hush with Payback, which is the first arc out of hush where he appears in gotham knights and they did a an, a tales from the dark multiverse which is basically an elseworlds hush that'll be an episode at some point in the future not anytime soon because we've got enough hush the the multiple leslies are a bit where we see the seams showing here we also run into it when Julia says at one point, suddenly she's saying she's SAS when she wasn't before she was SRR, the reconnaissance Rangers, not special air service. They seem to be using them interchangeably when they're in fact, different branches of the service, her majesty's service. Mm. Long live the queen. You know, this was what, 2016. She still had a good run after this. Ah, King Charles. Still weird. Yeah. Charles the third. It's been 300 and change years since Charles the second. 
I kind of knew this would be a, a lighter, shorter episode because there's fewer issues. And I, I don't have a lot more to say here. Visually for me, I think the chapter that Pazarin, is that mm-hmm. right? Fernando Pazarin, I yeah. think uh, I think that was really, really strong. And Pas- and as I said earlier, Faybach. Yeah, Pazarin is one of those very strong DC house style artists. He was on the most recent volume of The Flash for quite a while recently, and I generally enjoyed his work there. He's done a lot of just, you know, solid DC work over the years. R.M. Guerra is an artist I like, but I don't know how much his stuff is suited to superheroes. He's probably best known for doing scalps with Jason Aaron. Uh, in addition to, uh, what is that? The Goddamned? Is that it? I think, yeah. Yeah, again, with, with Aaron. Yeah, the, the Faybach chapters and the Pazarin chapters were were the strongest. And I liked, as much as I was not overly enamored with the origin, I like Juan Ferreira, who came in and just did the, the Hush origin bit. But he's he's a horror artist. And I found it strange that they would give him, you know, just this weird little flashback as opposed to putting him on one of the creepy Arkham segments. Also interesting that Ray Fox has done a lot of uh, horror. He does Gotham After Midnight, if I remember correctly. He does Um, with uh, Ferreira on the back half of it, I believe. And he, you know, he does the uh, Alfred and Bane, you know, exploring through Arkham chapter, which seems like an odd fit for him. Yeah, he was the writer who was doing, like, his prime thing was the supernatural stuff. And I wonder if they had handed that chapter over to Tinian or Higgins, if we would have gotten something more reflective of Nightfall. Interesting how Higgins' career has gone since this. Like, he's basically gotten out of DC and it's like, yeah, I'm just going to go do superheroes at Image. Yeah. And... They're fun. I mean, I like his little corner of that superhero universe with Ryan Parrott and Melissa Forbes in the the massive verse. And Matt Groom, who just came in with his kickstarted and now released through image book in the same universe as well. Not particularly for me, but uh, you guys have fun. It fills that in the gap that Invincible left when image didn't have a, a superhero contingent anymore. When you look at the these the writers here, you've got Higgins who's doing that. Tim Seeley just continues to do his Tim Seeley thing. He's got stuff coming out from Vault. Fox continues to, to work. I mean, Snyder was already a superstar. And now you've got Tinian who's huge. You know what? It's all better than uh, the other weekly that was running concurrently to this. Oof. New 52, Future's End. Nobody remembers that book. That was a mess. I, I'd say probably a lot of the uh, the listeners would say that uh, the New 52 was a mess. Yes. Oh, yes. The New 52 was half-hearted. That Who was farted? If you wanted the New 52 to work, they needed to reboot everything. Yeah. They didn't need to do these half-hearted reboots on the Bat books and the Green Lantern books. 
and massive reboots on Superman, Justice League, Flash, and Wonder Woman. That's where the New 52 falls apart. You needed to be willing to sacrifice certain characters that I would have been furious about. Don't get me wrong, because you would have had to sacrifice Tim Drake. But you needed to go fresh from everything. By doing the half-hearted reboot, the whole thing became a disaster. And at least I got the sense if if they had implemented 5G, you could have had different books at different points in the timeline, right? You could have had a bat book that was early career. That was year one era. You could have had a Batman and Dick Grayson era book. And it's kind of a shame that that just that fell apart. But to the extent that Jeff John says any part with it, I mean, fuck him. But, you know, what are you going to do? I think that if, if Wade and Mora's World's Finest has proven nothing else, it's that you can do different books across the timeline and it still works. I think there's always been that thought that if it's not happening in the present and we know where the story's going, it doesn't matter. But I mean, Legends of the Dark Knight proved that for years that you can still backfill continuity. And I, I think there should be a book where you get to see Bruce and Dick have adventures. We, we always say, and I miss Legends of the Dark Knight. I miss the fact that you can dance through the timeline and get different creators to just tell a story and just go with it. They don't listen to us, Matt. Nope. But I think as we're going back to that old saw. I think it's time for Batman Eternal Volume 2. Hush for on the big board. Okay. So we currently are at an weird in between point we're not currently divisible by three but we'll be back there next week we'll uh, get there with 223 stories on the big board uh number one is batman year one the post-crisis origin of batman down at number 50 is batman the vengeance of bane the origin of bane coming in at a sexy 69 it's batman and robin numbers one to three down at number 100 is Enigma Consulting Detective, where Riddler kind of reforms and acts like a detective. Down at 150 is Night of the Penguin, where the Penguin comes back to Gotham after the one-year gap. Also titled, Why Won't Paris Hilton Fuck Me? Paul Dini, you have issues. <laughs> Down at number 200 is The Arrow and the Bat. The weird Denny O'Neill, Sergio Cariello, Legends of the Dark Knight, Batman, Green Arrow arc. And hey, guess what? Down at the bottom, it's White Knight. Still terrible. All right. So we put Eternal Volume 1 at 46. This is not that good. So my, my range finder here is between 75 and 100. And I want to see what you think about that. Yes. I end up because it is well, it's definitely below 75. It is not as good as Nightfall Part 2. 100 is Enigma Consulting Detective. Yeah, I can see that. I'll even say I think it's somewhere in between 90 and 100. 
90 and 100. Okay. Because 90 is Doomsday Book. Batman meets Sherlock Holmes. I like that a lot. And this is just the hush stuff. Hush isn't that interesting. The supernatural stuff isn't that interesting. But there's still such good character work here. How does 97 sound? You got Untold Legends of the Batman number one through three there at 96. And that is also sort of windy because it's telling so many different stories because it's trying to get all of that Batman stuff into canon. But it's a little more elegant than this, which is kind of all over the place. And 66 meets the man from Uncle at 97 is, as we always say, a trifle. Yes. I think Eternal Chapter 2 is 97. Works for me. My final comment of the night, DC, stop trying to make Hush happen. When was the last time we saw Hush? Well, we just had that 20th anniversary one shot, or the 20th anniversary hardcover. And so there's hints of more Hush coming. Oh, right. Uh, the Right before Mariko Tamaki took over Detective, he's in that one arc by Tomasi, harvesting the Bat family's organs. It was a not a terribly memorable arc. Apparently not, since I literally don't remember it. Yeah, I started to look and was like, oh, right, that's where he was. I completely forgot about that. But yeah, so that's it for this week. Next week, well, next week we reach the end as the stunning conclusion of Batman Eternal changes things forever. Forever. Yeah, but a little while anyway. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. Jen, come in. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. <laughs> Asimov Fangirl. Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Tim Rooney, and Giorgio Sergioli for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin, where I can now tweet up to 4,000 characters of nonsense. But for now, I'm out of here. And good night, Huntsville! And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>